this morning. Psalm 36, verse 7. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. How excellent. In this psalm, David breaks this psalm down in two sections. First, he contemplates the transgression of the wicked in his own heart. He reflects on that in the first four verses, and then he transitions to the loving kindness of God. He will use the Hebrew word hesed, which is loving kindness, three times. Verse 5, mercy. Verse 7, loving kindness. And verse 10, O continue thy loving kindness. So we'll focus most of our attention on the loving kindness of God and its excellence. We first look at the description that David gives of the wicked. He would say in verse 1, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart. That is, he's reflecting. He is declaring in his own heart as he looks over the land, not only of the neighboring nations, but among his own people in Israel. He looks at the transgression and he comes to this conclusion. This is the root cause. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 2 gives the reason. Because he, that is the wicked, he flatters himself in his own eyes. There's no fear of God before his eyes because he flatters himself in his own eyes and it prevents him from seeing and knowing the fear of God until his iniquity be found to be hateful. Now the second part of verse 2, until and found are the same Hebrew words which mean to detect or discover. So what David is not saying that flattery prevents him until his iniquity is discovered. What he's saying is flattery prevents him from discovering the guilt of his own iniquity. He can't see his own guilt. Why? Self-flattery, self-esteem, a distorted, perverted view of one's self. That's why there's no fear of God before his eyes. The word flattery means smooth and slippery. It's what the Israelites told the prophets Prophesy not unto us right things, speak smooth things that we want to hear. The wicked are smooth operators when it comes to their own iniquity and their own guilt. They can't see it. Now, you remember Paul in Romans 3.18 makes the same connection. When he looks at the root of depravity, our relationship with God is not right. Therefore, our relationship with man is not right. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 19, For we know whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world become hupotikos, loses his own case in a courtroom. Guilty before God. Why is there no guilt? Not because there's not real guilt, but because there's no fear of God before his eyes. Or as David says, he flatters himself so that he cannot discover the guilt of his own iniquity. Now for the wicked, that may mean moral flattery. You know, I've done some pretty good things. You won't see your guilt that way. It may be theological flattery. We take God's words and redefine them like sin. You know, sin is only when I hurt you. And if I'm not hurting you, I'm not sinning. That kind of flattery will never bring you to the place of guilt where your mouth is shut and you lose your case in God's courtroom, which is the catalyst to justification in Romans chapter 3. Because now the righteousness of God is revealed. 
To whom? Those that fear God, those that have lost their case, those who've closed their mouths, those who have discovered the guilt of their own iniquity, and they own it. There's moral flattery, there's theological flattery, there's comparative flattery. Well, I'm not like that guy. You will never see your guilt as long as you make horizontal comparisons to people that you think are worse than you. You need to look up at the fear of God. There's future flattery. The person said, well, in the future, I'll own my guilt, I'll repent, I'll turn to Christ and I'll follow Him. What does that mean about you today? You're in your guilt and you're in unbelief. You're an unbeliever with the flattery that some future date, well then, you'll own your guilt. Which means today, you're guilty. And the wrath of God is hovering. Until such time, you turn and follow Christ. That's just future flattery. Now we can come to all these uh, ways that David is musing in his own heart about the transgression of the wicked. But what about the way of a Christian where we flatter ourselves in our own eyes until our own guilt is never discovered. I call it defensive flattery. That's where you say, I'm not wrong, you are. You will never come to the place where you own your guilt relationally until you stop defensive flattery. And you shift your blame to everybody else. Adam was a smooth operator, wasn't he? Flatter means smooth, slippery. How smooth he was. When God said, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? He didn't have to think. He didn't have to say, can I get back to you on the answer to that, Lord? Immediately, as if second nature, he gave three true answers. Nothing false in his words. It was the one you gave me. True or false? True. She gave me of the fruit, true or false, true. I did eat it, true or false, true. Boy, that is smooth, isn't it? Adam flatters himself in his own eyes by a defensive flattery that shifts it all to his wife. And what he said was absolutely true. Except for this. He told God what he did. He never owned why he did it. Until the Lord looked at Adam and said, You listened to your wife, therefore cursed be the ground for your sake. Why did you listen to your wife, Adam? Did she force you? Did she get you in a headlock and stuff the fruit into your mouth? No, you did what you wanted to do. Therefore, you're guilty as charged. Now, what's the point of Adam's flattery? If God wasn't there, what would that relationship look like? No, you did it. No, it was your fault. No, you're the wrong. No, you gave it to me. No, you, you were the lead. It goes on and on and on. Because there's no fear of God in that moment, which it was gone in the fall of man. And therefore, Adam is a smooth operator. And from the, from the, the words at surface value, it looks like he was in the right. When in fact, God says, you're in the wrong, the serpent's in the wrong, and Eve is in the wrong. So, beloved, when we look at the transgression of the wicked and we see the flattery that exists in our culture, let us remember that there's the remnant 
of the Adamic man that still clings to us like a dirty garment, that still is so ready and skillful and smooth to be able to shift the blame in a way that's just defensive flattery. And what happens? Your mouth is never stopped and you never own the guilt of your sin. And therefore you never grow and you never overcome the guilt of that iniquity. So David says the, the real issue is there's no fear of God, which means he flatters himself so that he cannot discover his own guilt. And now this is what issues forth when there's no fear of a God in a society among the wicked. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to do wise and to do good. He's left that pathway. He plans idolatry on his bed at night. He goes to sleep and all he can think about is his idolatry. And what he's going to do. That's the word for mischief. And then what? He sets, he positions himself in a way that is not good. It's not good. He does not abhor evil. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. This man who devises idolatry and gets up and positions himself all day in a position against God. He does not hate his evil. Why? Because he doesn't fear God. Now, what does that tell us, beloved? We need to fear God. Isn't it strange that the very thing that we need for conversion and for growth is the very thing that some Christians are saying don't ever talk about? The fear of God? And yet it is the foundational truth. It is is the gateway of justification. It's the gateway of receiving Christ Because my mouth is then closed and I own to God I'm a sinner. And then we embrace Christ. Because the fear of God has now been made known in such a way we see it. It's before our eyes. And all flattery is flushed away. It's moved out of the way. For the embrace of Christ. Now that's a contrast. So David sees that in his culture. We see that in our culture. And yes, we see some remnants of that in ourselves, don't we? Now David in verse 5 doesn't say, well, let me talk about now the righteousness of men. No, he looks up at the mercy of God. The word mercy, again, is hesed. It's loving kindness. It's used some 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a centerpiece of the Old Testament. It speaks of the very character of God. It's His steadfast love. It's His covenant-keeping faithfulness. It's His abundant goodness. It is His kindness. It is His mercy. There are so many nuances to it. It's at the forefront of who God is. And so now, David, in this transition, transition is going to look at four adjectives. And These are not His adjectives. We're, we're, we're putting these adjectives based on what we see in these texts. Four adjectives that describe the loving kindness of God. Now I'll start with V. First, how vast it is. David here uses parallelisms. He's going to repeat a structure or a word for emphasis. So your mercy's in the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. That's a repetition. It, it, it's up there, heavens and clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains and your judgment are great deeps. He repeats the word great, which means mighty and powerful. Because he wants to emphasize with those repetitions something about the vastness of God's loving kindness. And that loving kindness filters through to each of these aspects that we see 
that David uses about God. It's as if David ransacks nature and the world and the universe to find words that would capture the vastness of the greatness of God's loving kindness to you. First, His, His mercy, it's in the heavens. That could be where the stars are, it could be the galaxies, universe. In other words, it's, it's limitless and unceasing. From David's perspective, when he looks up in the sky, it looks as if it's limitless. It goes on and on. Notwithstanding the transgression of the wicked and the wickedness of men and the injustices in our society, God's loving kindness is in the heavens. It's limitless. It's unceasing. It's the new morning mercies that Jeremiah talks about. In Lamentations 3. It is the sure mercies of David that God speaks to Israel in Isaiah 55. Those are the same words, hesed. It's what Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, But God who is rich in mercy for the great love for with He loved us, even we were dead in sins. For by grace are you saved. And by His mercy and His love, equivalent to loving kindness, not the same word. He has quickened us together and made us, raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places together in Christ Jesus so that, here's His mercy which is limitless, that in the ages to come, He might show, demonstrate, prove to you the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness to you in Christ Jesus. How long will it take God to prove it? Ages and ages of limitless eternity. Beloved, His loving kindness to you is limitless. It's unceasing. That's a good comparison to the wickedness of men, isn't it? But next, His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So it's limitless, but it's also out of the reach of man. It's above us. That means it's independent of men. The wicked can't reach it. They can't prevent it. They can't stop it. And beloved, even your own sins cannot stop God's loving kindness and His faithfulness, which are always, are usually coupled together in Scripture. His faithfulness to you. Remember the Corinthian church? You would think if there's ever a church that God was going to say, that's it. I've had it. And maybe they're times in this church where God may look down and say, I've had it with those people, right? Paul begins that letter where he's going to have to rebuke the church he loves because of the outlandish sins going on in that church. He would say, Jesus Christ is going to confirm you to the end so that you'll be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He's faithful who's called you into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of God that called them by faith to be united to Christ now is going to come to them, notwithstanding their sin and their iniquity and all the abuses going on at Corinth, yet He's coming to them independent of their actions because His faithfulness reaches to the clouds and He's going to come to the rescue with the words of Paul. Isn't that good news about God's faithfulness, His loving kindness, notwithstanding the iniquity of men, notwithstanding our own sin, which we would say with the songwriter, prone to wonder, God I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You ever prone to that? 
God is not prone to leave you, beloved. His faithfulness, His loving kindness is limitless. It's out of the reach of men. It's independent of your actions. And if you wander, He's coming. Like a shepherd that watches over his flock in the day and by the night. On a high hill looking over every single sheep will go after that one wayward sheep. Has that ever been you? Do you ever think it could be you? Isn't it comforting to know that God's faithfulness reaches under the clouds? Or like David in Psalm 23 about the the good shepherd that provides, would say, surely goodness and hesed, mercy or loving kindness, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Really, David, how do you think you're going to dwell there forever? Because the goodness and the hesed of God is going to chase me. That's what the word follow means. It actually can mean to dog you, to to go after you, to pursue you, to chase you all the days of your life. That is good news. Then he goes to the next parallelism. Your mercy is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Not Rainbow Mountain. Not Montesano. More like Mount Everest. Now the word great concerning His righteousness and His judgments, because His loving kindness, which is so excellent, keeps coming faithfully because God is righteous. And so it's like a great inflexible mountain. Immovable. It's rock solid. God is not like a politician. He's uncompromising. He doesn't negotiate His righteousness. He won't make a deal. His righteousness is absolutely unflinching. It's like a great mountain. Well, how is that good news? Because God has declared you to be right if you trust Jesus Christ. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now there is a mountain of charges, you understand, that could be laid against you. Probably just last week. You get that, right? There is a mountain of charges that would stick in any court of law where God's law is being applied. And yet God says, not guilty. Justified. Now there are some Supreme Court justices right now that could be moved to compromise and give a a different judgment out of distress, threats, fear, pressure. This judge will never compromise. You could pick it all day long. His righteousness is inflexible and immovable. It's like a great mountain. And so, who can condemn you, Paul would say? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also is making intercession for you. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? I mean, Paul goes through a whole litany of words. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature... Just in case I left anything out. Any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that's loving kindness, hesed. 
Why not? Because the Supreme Court Justice of one has declared you inflexibly right. It'll never change. It cannot change. Because God is the one that's declared it. It's like a great mountain. And His judgments like a great deep. They are a great deep. The judgments connect with the righteousness of God because in His righteous courtroom, He makes verdicts, decisions, decrees. And how are they like a great deep? Well, sometimes they're like a deep because we can't fathom His justice sometimes, especially if you look out on the transgression of the wicked. You may conclude there is no justice, but they're like a mighty deep ocean. Now, a lot of people have made it to the top of Mount Everest, but only three have made it down into the Mariana Trench, miles in the ocean. That was in the 1960. And the first guy stayed there about 20 minutes, and he had to come back up and the special equipment he had. See, if you're going to go down there, you've got to go down there uh, on the basis of the pressures, the crushing pressures of the ocean. And we still don't know all this down there. Three men. So if we try to assess the judgments of God as it relates to the wicked and justice, we look around and we say, there's no justice. When everybody's crying injustice, in fact, there is no justice with the justice that they're trying to seek. And so God's decisions are a great deep. They are sure. They're like a mighty grand mountain. They're inflexible. But we can't always understand by simply looking at what we see in the world or even looking at what happens to us. The injustices may abound. But God's judgment one day is going to reveal itself in a right way. It will be shown to be right. We think of Romans 11 verse 35, I think it is, where he says, Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. His judgments are unsearchable. Why? Verse 36. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Can you... Search out the depths of the infinite mind and know what's there. That's why His judgments are way past us. And they're unsearchable. Can you counsel the mind who needs no counsel? Who's infinite in wisdom and knowledge? That's why Paul says, for. Who had known the mind of the Lord? For, because. Of those things. And then he answers again. Who hath first given to him that it may be recompensed to him again? You know, to know and to be able to search out the judgments of God, to understand them, would be to give God information, to give him data, and then him to return it back to us. See, what can you give to the infinite mind whose understanding is infinite, whose knowledge is infinite? You can't tell him anything he doesn't know. You can't inform him of anything that he doesn't already uh, aware of. And you can't give him information to draw up a plan because he's planned everything from before eternity. So his judgments are unsearchable by the human mind because who's given to him that it may be returned to us again? No one. And here's the conclusion. With three prepositions for of him and through him and to him are all things. These judgments that can all, can, cannot always be seen. Here's God's conclusion. Everything is ek, out of, from Him, 
That's the preposition of. Everything is out from God. Everything is dia, instrumental. Everything is through instrumentation of God. And everything will go back to God in glory and honor and praise. And then His judgments will be known and seen as what they are. Righteous like a great mountain. And His judgments are like a great deep. God is going to make it known. So rest in the vastness of His loving kindness. And know that even His loving kindness is so vast, it even reaches to the preservation of man and beast. Verse 6. How good is God's loving kindness that even the birds and the beast of the field receive from His loving, kind hand. They get their food from God. The most wicked of the wicked on the planet are beneficiaries of God's preserving gift of common grace. Nobody on this planet, no living thing on this planet is independent of God for their very breath. Yours right now. (gasps) That just came from God. You don't breathe without Him. You don't think without Him. You don't live without Him. Even those that reject Him. How good is that? God is so good that He lets men use His sunshine and eat His food. And He gives them food and gladness every day in their bellies and yet they spit Him out of their mouths. Oh, how good is God. But for you that trust Him, let us rest in the vastness of God's love and kindness. And we can't see We don't understand all the injustices, all the the planning and plotting against the righteous on the earth rest in the vastness of God's loving kindness. Secondly, beginning in verse 7, our title text, How excellent is thy loving kindness. The word excellent means valuable. Oh, how valuable it is. How valuable is it, David? He's going to give us three ways that God's loving kindness is a value to the children of men. How, ex- how valuable is your loving kindness, O God? Therefore, here's the first one, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. First, it's a sheltering love. God's loving kindness is sheltering. The word trust means to seek as a refuge, to seek as a shelter. It's a word picture, as you know, of a, of a mother hen who opens the wing and the little baby chick runs under the sheltering wing of the mother. Is God's loving kindness that valuable to you that you would therefore, having seen it, having known it, the preciousness of Christ and the value of God's love, that you come under it again and again, seeking refuge, seeking a place of shelter. Whether it's the shelter of the transgression of the wicked, or more importantly, the sheltering of God's own wrath, right? Isn't it amazing that God shelters you with His wing on one side, because the other wing is a wing of wrath from the same God? God hasn't saved you from the devil. He saved you from His own wrath. And so we're sheltered in the refuge of Christ who bore the wrath for us. And by faith we come under that shelter and we seek protection and we seek 
all the comforts that we find in God's loving kindness. But there's another way that we would be sheltered under the wings of His love. Years ago, when I was about six years old, I decided I want to be a mighty hunter. My dad made me a little bow with string on it from a stick that he had cut two notches in and had a little tautness to it. Made an arrow, whittled an arrow and put a little slot so it would grab the string. And we had a few chickens at the time. So I thought, there's my first prey. I'd sneak up on one of the chickens. I got about 10 feet away and I pulled back the bow to venture and let it go. And to my surprise, it stuck right in the chicken. I was distraught. I've killed our chicken. And when I put my head up again, I looked, and he's just pecking around like nothing ever happened. Upon further investigation, I saw that my arrow went between the wings, the feathers, and didn't pierce the body. You see, beloved, when we're sheltered under the shadow of the Almighty, it doesn't mean no arrows get through, does it? It means the wing is a filter, and only the arrows that are designed for your good, get through. And that's God's loving kindness to you. His loving kindness is so valuable and so protective that only the arrows that will get through His wingspan will get there by His design. And so when we interpret God's loving kindness that way, we don't do like David will say later that the hand of the wicked might remove him to shake him, to move him away from God's loving kindness because he understands that under the wing of God, the shadow there doesn't mean no pain gets through. It doesn't mean no one harms me. It just means his loving kindness so filters it that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. If God be for us, who could be against us? See? He said, but I'm under the wing. That means no arrow that touches you can ever effectually be against you. That's amazing, isn't it? No harm, no wicked person, no devil, no demon could actually successfully and effectually be against you. Why? Because he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall I not with him freely give you all things? Everything... Because of God's loving kindness, His faithfulness, His righteousness, His judgments toward you is being so worked to serve His great purpose of predestination and to draw you closer, not to push you away. If we misinterpret what it means to be under the shadow of His wings and the arrows start flying and they start hitting and they start causing pain and we start bleeding, what will you do? I'm not staying under those wings anymore. So the value of His loving kindness, it's a sheltering love. But it shelters according to His sovereign design and holy purposes. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So wait for Him and stay under the wings of the Almighty God because His loving kindness is there. Don't interpret it by your own eyes. The second Value of God's loving kindness is that it's a satisfying love, isn't it? Well, don't take my word for it. This is God telling you what it is. Verse 8, 
They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Who are they? The ones that run under the wings. Now here's the main point I want to make about this. What are the implications then if the ones that are fleeing for shelter are the ones who are being satisfied and drinking from a river of pleasure? What are the implications for your life? That's what you need to be seeking. Would it make sense to run under the wing and to find a big banqueting table there and a river that flows under that wing to the pleasures that you could drink from freely and say, well, I'm not going to drink from that. That'd be too self-serving. No, God is making you to drink. And the making is not a forcing. It's just unveiling His loving kindness that you want to drink. So the implication is, beloved, you should be seeking to drink from the fountain of God. And if you're not, you can't glorify a river that you're not drinking from. And you can't give honor to the God of the house if you won't eat from the table. So enough with your stoicism and get to drinking and eating to the fullness of the pleasures of God. That's what David did in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, early will I seek thee. What are you seeking? My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. I want to see your power and your glory, so I have seen thee in the sanctuary. What would be the upshot? Because your loving kindness is better than life. What's David seeking? Well, he's seeking the loving kindness of God. What's he doing? He's going under the shadow of his wings. What's there? There's a big house of fatness. There's a big river flowing. And he says, I'm jumping in it. I'm seeking that. What happens? Verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Verse 1. I'm seeking you, God. God says, what are you after, David? I want to see your power and your glory. What would that mean? That means I'm going to see your loving kindness. What would happen? I'm going to be satisfied with the fatness of your house. Why are you not seeking to be satisfied in God? Why are you not seeking to drink from rivers of pleasures? God is the one causing you to drink. It's His whole idea that you drink from the river of who He is. And be sure, the fatness of the house and the river of pleasure is the God of pleasure. It's the God of spiritual pleasure, right? You can't get that from creation. Creation will give you a quick buzz and it's over. But David says, my soul shall be satisfied. Your money can't do that, beloved. Your possessions can't do that. The beach can't do it. Wonderful as it is. And I admit, it's pretty wonderful because God created it. Your soul will be satisfied. Your soul will be fat. Isaiah 55. Delight yourself in the fatness of the Lord. Incline your ears. Come to me. Eat, drink, be satisfied. What else could God say to us than to use the language of food and banqueting and a river for which flows in it just pleasures that we think He's saying, you better not drink from that. You better not satisfy yourself. No. Let your soul drink, God says. Let it get fat. There are no restrictions on this table. 
There's nothing on the table that God is so designed that you can't eat. And so what does David do in Psalm 63? Verse 8. My soul followeth hard after you. That's our problem, isn't it? You're not following so hard. You're not pursuing. Are you going after God's loving kindness in such a way that when you grasp it, it brings more fulfillment to your soul? Or is it because you're too busy going after something else or someone else? And then you wonder why. Why why is my experience not like what he says? Or what God says? Why is that not like that for me? Could it be? Could it be that you're not seeking shelter under his wings? And you're not seeking to drink and seeking to find God to be the satisfier of your soul? Then you won't experience it. So it's clear from our psalm that the person who is sheltered or running under the shelter is the person that's running after God and that they're drinking and that they're finding God's house to be a a fat house where there's an abundance of spiritual food. See, now that transforms again the way we approach worship, right? See, if your idea of worship is just you're going to come and serve people and not get anything out of it, you've got the wrong view of worship. He says, that's what's wrong. You, you came to church to get something out of it. You need to come to serve. That's not right. You're coming to eat and drink from a river of God's spiritual pleasures. And so we lift up His loving kindness in hopes that God would do that for us. Right? If we don't seek to be spiritually satisfied from the rivers of pleasure... You're like going to a self-service gas station. You fill up your tank with the fuel of the world and you're on your way. I think that's worth repeating. Not because it's such a good illustration. It just makes the point, doesn't it? If you're not seeking God as the satisfier of your soul and the river of pleasures that are found in Christ, you're like going to a self-service gas station where you stick the fuel of the world into your tank and you try to fill it up. And it just gives you a quick buzz and it's over. How valuable is God's loving kindness, David? It's so valuable. It satisfies and it gives me joy and pleasure. The third word he uses, or the third word I'm using to describe what David says is that it's sustaining. Verse 9. Because, now why is this true? Why is it the sheltering love of God, is a satisfying love of God, is a pleasing to our souls? Because with God is a fountain of life. In His light we see light. That's the root issue. He's, He's a fountain. But He's a fountain of life. Not just physical life. He is a fountain of physical life to every being on the planet. But He's a fountain of spiritual life. He is source and sustaining. And the fountain never runs dry. In Him is life. Eternal life. And so the reason God has a sheltering love that's a satisfying love is because He's a fountain that sustains. 
He's a fountain of living waters. He's like what Jesus told the woman at the well. If you drink that water again, you'll thirst again. But the water that I shall give you is living water. It's a fountain springing up into everlasting life. It comes resident in you and it just gushes up forever. Because Christ is the fountain of life. What kind of life does He give? An empty table life? In a dry creek bed like back of the church back there? That There's no rain, there's nothing there? No, it's satisfying, pleasing, joyful. Back to verse 8. Because He is the fountain of life, spiritually, He gives life abundantly satisfying, joyful, and it gives you pleasure in the soul. In the soul. The five senses can function independent of that at times. You know, the five senses need creation to have joy and satisfaction. You need to put something on the body, in the body, wrap it around the body. This is the soul is satisfied. Because with thee is the fountain of life. So there are three ways that David is going to say that God's loving kindness is valuable. It is sheltering. It is satisfying. It is sustaining. It goes on forever and ever. The fountain, as the songwriter says, never runs dry. Now... The third way is that His loving kindness is vital. It's vital, which means it's important. So in verse 9, For with thee is the fountain of life, and thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness to them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me, to cause me to wander from the value of God's loving kindness. That's why it's valuable. Or that's why it's vital. If we don't have the love of God continuing, which the word continue means drawn out, prolonged, or extended, what happens? You're moved. The hand of the wicked comes, and it's not through their malice, through their temptation, and you're moved from the God of the house and the river of pleasure. Why? Because you think you found it somewhere else. That's not possible. It's vital. So David gives a petition to God. Oh God, continue your loving kindness. Because if not, the, the foot of the pride, a proud and the, the hand of the wicked might remove me. So he petitions and he speaks of God's loving kindness as vital. Now here are two questions. Who is it vital to and how does it become vital? How does it help keep us from being removed in verse 11. Well, he says it's to those that know thee, to those that are upright, which according to Psalm 32 means those that trust him. So, draw out your loving kindness to those that know you, to those that trust you, because your righteousness is to those that trust, not work. Okay, That's to whom it's for. How does it keep get, getting drawn out to you? This is key with verse 8. How is he going to be like a fountain to me? He says, In thy light shall we see light. What that means is, the life is the light, and we need the light to experience the light of God in the house, in the river, in his sheltering love. And we experience the light of God and the life of God that helps us see by faith 
then we stay. We're not removed. Now, clearly in John 8 in the New Testament, the light of life is Jesus Christ, right? Jesus said to the Jews, Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You're the fountain of life, in your light you shall see light. John 1, 4. He was the life and the light of men. He's the life, and that life is light. And so David, although not knowing what he's saying, is saying we need Christ, who is the life of God. He is God, and in His light, we can see light in such a way that we see God as a river, as a fountain, as a fat house, and as a sheltering love. Without God, we can't see it. We need God's help. How does Christ help us? He helps us by showing us who He is. He helps us by showing us what He's done. And then He helps us to walk by faith. Because He comes to live within us. So when David says, draw out your loving kindness to those that know you, to those that trust you, he's saying in the light of Christ, in the light of God, we're able to experience the light we need so that we keep knowing God and we keep trusting God. Knowing Him how? Sheltering, satisfying, sustaining, loving kindness. Let's talk about that just a few minutes. To walk by faith and not by sight doesn't mean we're blind. It means we're able to see something more reliable, more spectacular, and more trustworthy than what you can with these eyes. How vital is it to see by faith? How vital is it for faith to see by the Word of God? How vital is it to drive with your eyes open? Or your glasses on or your contacts in? Years ago, I was on a country road, a gravel road. Children, please don't try this. I slowed down. I wanted to see what it was like to drive with your lights off at night. Yes, that was not, not a wise thing. I was going pretty slow. wasn't going fast. Big, wide gravel road, nobody around. I turned them off. I couldn't see anything. Two seconds, they're back on. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What happens when you turn the headlamps off? Faith cannot see a thing. Nothing. Drive without your glasses. Faith cannot see. How does faith see? When the word becomes the lamp and the light, your feet know where to walk. And you can see in God's light. You need light to see light. You need God's light of the Word, the light of Christ, in order to see light. So you can continue knowing God, trusting God, and His loving kindness. How vital is that? Abraham, by faith, when he was called to go out into a place that he would afterward receive for an inheritance, went not knowing where he's going. So if Abraham takes off the glasses of God's promise and His Word that says, I'm going to tell you where to go. I know the city. I'm going to get you there. If he takes the glasses off, what does he say? I'm not going anywhere. Are you crazy? I don't know the city. I don't know where it is. I don't know if there's a job there. I don't know if there's an infrastructure. Am I going to have to build a well? He puts on the glasses of the Word of God and his faith sees clearly one thing. God called me to go. I don't care where it is. I don't have to concern myself. He just went. 
By faith Abraham, when he was a hundred years old, considered not his body, which was now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now what happened when Abraham didn't have the glasses of God's Word to see with faith? He took the glasses off. He had a son named Ishmael. Well, that was disastrous. Why did he do that? Because faith cannot see without the Word of God. It cannot. We get the idea that we've got faith. We, don't, we, don't, we just go on because I have faith. Faith is walking in darkness without a lamp. Faith is driving the car with the lights off. Faith is taking the glasses off unless the Word of God and the lens of God's Word is, is in front of it. So when the lens comes back for Abraham, God said, no, I promise you, you're going to have a son at a certain time. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Now, if he takes off the promise of God's Word, he says, I'm not ever... What are you, you asking me to kill my son? No way. I'm not doing that. But he puts the word of promise before the eyes of faith. And what did God say? In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You need a seed, you need a son, and you don't have one. So with one singular promise, one, the word is a lamp and it's a torch. And his feet walk up the mountain where he discovers Jehovah Jireh. Beloved, faith cannot see Without the Word. By faith, Moses did not fear the wrath of the king, but endured as seeing him as invisible. He could see something he couldn't see because faith was looking through the lens of what God said. If you close off the lamp and shut it down, faith, the faith that you still have, cannot see. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to be removed from the loving kindness of God. His house is not so satisfying, is it? And His river, surely there's no pleasure there. Why? Because you've taken the lens off. You've, you've turned the headlamps off on the car. You didn't put the contacts into the Word of God. It's vital, David says. So he pleads with God, Continue your loving kindness to those that know you and that trust you By giving them the light of Christ so that they can see, experience the light of the Word and they can keep walking and not be removed. The problem in our culture is instant gratification, isn't it? Verse 8 doesn't happen that way. You don't drink from God's pleasure and eat the fatness of His house like a 30-second microwave meal or a dopamine rush on social media. That's our problem, friends. I'm sorry, it is. Maybe it's my problem too, right? What's that doing for you? Dopamine rush, quick, over. Got to have it again. Fountain of life, not quick, not instant. God wants you to work for it, but you're not willing because you're so fixed on instant gratification. And I live in the same culture, don't I? I far more would rather have it fast and quick rather than waiting and wrestling and praying. And seeking. Beloved, we need to be aware of the, the culture of instant gratification that causes us to put our faces in the phones all day long and wake up with them and go to sleep with them. I do not speak to you from a distance there. I have a phone too. And then the instant gratification, we come to the house, we come to the river, and it's like, mm, yeah, you know, not that big a deal, really. 
God's love is not a dopamine rush. It's a fountain that gushes up. That the way we drink it and the way we eat it is through Word of Christ. It must dwell richly. We must be in it and we must be petitioning God. How vital is it, David? Oh, don't let the foot of pride come against me and don't let the hand of the wicked cause me to wander aimlessly to and fro. What do you need to do, David? In your light, I experience light. Draw out your loving kindness through the lamp and through the light of the Word of God. He will do it. He will. And lastly, the the victory. Oh, how victorious the loving kindness of God is. Verse 12. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. Now, how is that victory? Notice the word there. That's locative location. Where? Could be at the point of their malice, the foot of pride and the hand of the wicked trying to remove David. There are the workers of iniquity. But I think also it's there at the point of God's loving kindness. Because it's at that point they reject it. That's why they'll never rise again. They are cast down, the workers of iniquity. They flatter themselves continually. They have no guilt. They don't fear God. They can't see His loving kindness. It's there at the point of God's loving kindness will be their utter, complete, and forever eternal downfall. Forever. But it's there you find victory. Because at the point where they are no longer able to rise, their final apostasy, their final ruin, that's the point where you rise up, Christian. That's where you rise forever. There, victoriously, in the loving kindness of God, you will rise up forever and ever and ever. The streams on earth you've tasted, more deep you'll drink above. Right? That's what we sing. You've been tasting streams of the river of God's pleasures. One day, You're going to be thrown into an ocean fullness. His mercies are going to expand exponentially. Infinity. Expanding. The table keeps expanding. And there are more dainties on the table that you've never even had. For how long? Forever. You'll never taste the same meal again forever. Because His mercy will expand. Where in Emmanuel's land, there at the point of their utter and complete fall is the point of your uprising to the river, to the fatness of God's house forever and ever and ever. Beloved, His loving kindness is vast. It's valuable. It's vital. And it's victorious. Let's pray.